And at this point in time, where capital is taking on more of a state logic, it's not clear to me, and I don't think it should be clear to anyone, that the logic of those opposing capital should in fact work in the same direction as capital itself. So you need an anti-state critique. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. And welcome to Salvage Live, hosted by me, Annie Olaloku-Tariba, and the incredible Barnaby Rain. This is a new series of live events, also available at any time on YouTube, brought to you by Haymarket Books and our favorite journal, Salvage, which appears twice a year based in Britain and which records the debris of past revolutionary projects in the hope of creating new ones. These events are part of that project. Everywhere around us, we hear that the phrase of the day is back to business. History is making a comeback and America is retaking her rightful place at the helm of global imperialism. With one fell swoop, as we are led to believe across the imperial core, the safe pair of hands slayed the twin ghosts of revolution and naked reaction who were rearing their troublesome heads from the history before the end of history. Neoliberalism came back from beyond the grave to bury its dead once more. Witness the witness the epoch which cannibalized the history of every epoch before it. It was easier to receive a wisdom about the end of history than it was to contend with how the engines of history were being upended. It's easier to prophesy the death of the left, to read the stuttering whispers that another future is possible as the death size of the treasure of evolution which held our hope together at the seams, than it is to envisage how we might contend with the mystification of memory and the shroud of fog it brings to imagine how we might reconstitute our radical horizons anew. The past is dead, long live the past. Throughout the manuals and the answers, throughout the history books and start again, we must begin our accounting of history in the present. The work of accounting for our failures is a hard slog. Unearthing our new possibilities is harder still, but we cannot truly hope to make history until we have thrown ourselves with abandon into both. There is no freedom to be found in new solutions to old problems. We must contend with how our problems have changed. There can be no, solu- no old solutions to new problems either. We cannot reassemble our old placards, slogans, or solidarities. Capitalism has made light work of commodifying our resistance. If we are to, as Sivanandan puts it, catch history on the wing, we mustn't start our investigations from the good old things, but the bad new ones. History may be dead, but the makers of history still live. As as the late Mark Fisher put it, the long dark night of the end of history has to be grasped as an enormous opportunity. The very oppressive pervasiveness of capitalist realism means that even glimmers of alternative political and economic possibilities can have a disproportionately great effect. The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism from a situation in which nothing can happen suddenly everything is possible again. And so we begin with David Graeber and with death. 
We planned this event to honor and to mourn a radical who told us how much of life should be untimely, out of jolt, how deceptive ordered schemas of planning and progress can be. Well, his death was untimely. And today I woke up to the news that Marshall Salins is dead, Graeber's PhD supervisor, with whom he published On Kings about five years ago. Salins famously spent his career provincializing authority and capitalism, chipping away at the sordid and demobilizing hegemony, which would render natural and eternal our temporary miseries. Graeber, of course, did that too. So I want to say something in opening about why Salvage Live starts our series with Graeber, to introduce you to our David Graeber. Uh, hope is precious, we say at Salvage. It must be rationed. Well, Graeber was notably more optimistic, and I'll come to that. And yet he's still fitting for us. He insisted, even before the 2008 crash brought the term back into popular use, that capitalism should be our object of analysis. As importantly, he studied it by mining the past for insights and not for dogmas, seeing how its buried treasure might look different in today's light. An anarchist, he often made more creative use of Marx than many professed Marxists. In his 2007 book, Toward an Anthropological Theory of Value, he treats Marx as a theorist of fetishism, sure, but also of pleasure and of desire. Critical of the statified, bureaucratic, productivist lure of 20th century mass anti-capitalisms, Graeber treasured the finest impulses of their militants towards dignity and a collective freedom enjoyed with one another. He wanted always to find possibilities for other worlds lodged in this one. He wanted, in other words, always to salvage the good from the bad. Anthropology became his tool for that. In the value book, he remarks on the context of anthropology's modern birth. We all know that the 19th century was an age of imperialism, and we read anthropology's interest in indifference against that backdrop. But why do we forget, Graeber asks, that these were days dominated by anxieties of revolution too? Here was a discipline that studied the basic rudiments of people's lives, guided by a surety that lives could be arranged utterly differently. Of course, that has a conservative edge. Graeber's PhD ethnography in Madagascar, only published in 2007 as Lost People, is an interesting kind of contrast and continuity. We see his anthropological anarchism. Um, the book is structured by his interest in the possibilities for politics without the state. But in other respects, it seems very traditional, treating the persistence of pre-colonial divisions between aristocrats and slaves in rural Madagascar in the middle of a structural adjustment program where rice prices were rising so much that the cost of the minimum healthy food intake was higher than the legal minimum wage. Now, Graeber was conscious of that, of course, but he mentions the IMF just three times in the text. It's almost like Clifford Geertz writing about Balinese cockfights while thousands of communists were massacred around the corner. It's an anarchism like James Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed, which seems to apply only to people far away, read perhaps through some rose tinting, and it all has little immediately to say to us. But then two years later, in 2009, Graeber published his vast 500-page second work of ethnography, and his focus now was not distant islanders, but anarchists from New York and elsewhere protesting the summit of the Americas in Quebec months before 9-11. That was a study of the seeds beneath our snow. Now, in 2006, his essay, uh, Turning Modes of Production Inside Out, exemplified his creative encounter with Marx. Drawing on a passage from Marx's ethnographic notebook, Graeber treats modes of producing particular kinds of people, not just material goods, so that capital's claim to be about the production of commodities alone is the ideological work, which obscures, and here's the political punch, it's linked to slavery. Both produce particular kinds of people, slaves or women, 
whose labor is not then entirely subject to a preponderant law of value. And so the remarkable similarity between the two is the separation between the home and the formal workplace, defining freedom and both slave society, ancient Greek and Roman slave society, and capitalism premise themselves on claims about freedom, only through its coexistence with hierarchy and circumscribing a narrow sphere of freedom and equality, the agora or the ideal marketplace, to encourage us to forget how little of our lives is really spent there. Much about Graeber comes clearly into view if you read him as a contributor to the critique of ideology, that long-standing and fine tradition. He's most famous for his fascination with a single conversation. After recounting the horrors of IMF structural adjustment programs pushing people into malnutrition, a liberal NGO worker at a party said to him, but people must pay their debts. The resulting book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, undercuts a central ideological theme of our age, ideological in the classic sense familiar to Marx, a partial truth for representing relations of power and inequality like credit and debt as relations of reciprocity and natural justice, that great deceptive move. We will, of course, talk more about debt today. Graeber comes back to ideology critique again and again, the supposed naturalness of markets and of money, the very idea of the West, the labor theory of value as a mere reflection of capital's abstraction of labor, the imbrication of capitalism with progress as its defining alibi. The examples are everywhere in his work. And so he shows us the promise of anthropology. It doesn't start with the parceled up categories, economy, society, politics, from which most social scientists and too many social theorists begin. It seeks instead to look at messy worlds and to ask how those categories get made and at what cost. The work of Hannah Apple, Grable's comrade and our second guest today, who writes of capitalism as a project, not a context, shows how profound this methodological insight can be. It was for Graeber an optimistic insight. The reality of the world is not just an enemy totality. Capitalism is not hermetic, as Hannah Apple puts it. In debt, he writes of the everyday communism through which most of us relate to others, like Jerry Cohen's jibe about camping trips as socialism. In a 2007 essay, Army of Altruists, Graeber's anti-imperialism is not tarnished by asking why people joined the US military in a deluded attempt to do good in a broken world, to find a space for ideals of public service amid neoliberalism. His confident, optimistic universalism of human nature, here he's not quite like Salins, wants grounds of solidarity and recognition. He writes, as I always tell activists engaged in the peace movement and counter-recruitment campaigns, why do working class kids join the army anyway? Because like any teenager, they want to escape the world of tedious work and meaningless consumerism, to live a life of adventure and camaraderie in which they believe they are doing something genuinely noble. <coughs> they join the army because they want to be like you. That's Graeber speaking to the anarchists. Sometimes that optimism can be jarring. He credits the anti-war movement in the American 60s with America's humiliation in Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. He reads the anti-globalization movement of the late 90s as having scored a series of victories. He tells counterintuitive and inspiring histories. But are they true? I think this summons a deeper question, and I'll finish on this, about Graeber's most fundamental impulse. In what sense is our world a creation? And what does that mean for politics? To say that the social world is ultimately built by human beings and then to say we build it so we can tear it down, Rousseau's famous claim in Emile and Graeber's too, is to risk moving from a banality to a lot of grandiosity. In Graeber's 2018 book, Bullshit Jobs, we read that the job of the corporate lawyer is unnecessary. But in what sense? It isn't right that they could all go home tomorrow, forever, and corporate deals could grind to a halt and we would not in our current order notice any difference. Nor is it obvious that our lives would immediately improve. 
The interesting tension is that people rightly feel their jobs to be unnecessary and necessary at the same time. Capitalism is not just corporate bosses or a mythology of value thinly covering life worlds of everyday communism. Against social reproduction theories, binary of life-making versus profit-making, the truth is that we're all implicated in hierarchy and profit for our own reproduction. And so the negative language of unveiling or abolition is not enough to make the end of capitalism thinkable. This is, it seems to me, fundamental to the Marxist criticism of anarchisms, including Graeber's. With our two guests today, we'll be discussing these and other points of inspiration and criticism that form David Graeber's legacy as a militant intellectual. Our first guest is James Meadway, whose essay on Graeber in the most recent issue of Salvage, which you should all buy and subscribe to, forms our starting point. So, James, welcome. Hi, uh, hi Barnaby. Thanks for the intro. Um, my first question to you is, uh, is, is pretty simple, James. It's what could you, as a former chief economic advisor to the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, possibly find an interest in an anarchist anthropologist? Well, the, the, look, the, the key word there is former, right? Uh, and, and the truth is that Jeremy Corbyn isn't and, and wasn't the, the prime minister, despite you know the, the song and the, the Twitter wind-up that took hold some point in 2017. Uh, and John never became chancellor, never mind shadow chancellor. So, so the first bit is is there's a need to understand why that is the case. Uh, why did we lose and lose rather badly? And I think it's worth starting with that because you know, sometimes the, the scale loss here uh, it gets a bit understated um, sometimes. Actually, there's two things. One is that scale of loss gets understated. You know, this is a sort of fairly superficial thing, and eventually the left will just rebound, and possibly that'll be quick, and you know that's that. And then the other side is just overstating it, which is this is literally the end of everything and the end of hope, and and it's nothing but but bad neoliberalism and capitalism for, forevermore. So I think there's a, a need to understand why that happened. Um, and it also gets beyond the fairly sort of superficial sets of explanations, which, depending on where you sit uh, in relation to the left, is either something like um, Jeremy Corbyn was terrible, that's why we lost, or Brexit was terrible, that's why we lost. And you kind of take your pick, depending on which sort of useless explanation you want to go for. These things explain part of it, but they, they don't, or at least a version of both of those, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and the particular features he brought to the leadership and Brexit and the particular features it brought to the Labour Party explain some of that. But it also strikes me that there's something else that you get to that is particularly hard if you're in Britain to do this because it's, it's, it's quite a parochial culture on the left, really. Um, where there's a kind of need to lift your nose out of the, the ground a bit and take a look around and realise it's not just a left project in Britain for its specific issues uh, that is facing a problem. It's a left project across the whole of Europe, several different left projects that are facing a problem. The, the, the sort of left populist moment that runs all the way really from roughly, well, really 2008, but let's say 2010, 2011, all the way through to 2019 has come grinding to a halt, not just in, in Britain, with the loss of the 2019 election, then the loss of the Labour leadership, then actually the, the loss of the the, uh, the National Executive Committee uh, in, in the Labour Party, but also right the way across Europe. You know, Syriza basically fails. Uh, France Insoumise reaches a, a dead halt. Uh, the left party, which predates some of this, but has a bit of a surge in the back of it, kind of reaches this sort of impasse. And, and that happens absolutely across Europe. And where the left parties that have grown out of this sort of populist moment, this anti-austerity moment uh, had appeared, most obviously in Spain and somewhat in Portugal, 
they get to go into government only in coalition with social democratic forces, pre-existing ones. This was never really an option inside Britain. If you want to get anywhere inside of Britain, you sort of have to be part of the, the major social democratic party, which is a Labour party. This is how the electoral system works and how all the institutions around it work. So so everywhere there's a ground to halt. It can't be that Jeremy Corbyn affected the whole of Europe. I mean, this just isn't plausible, and it certainly isn't at Brexit, which is just happening in Britain. There has to be a bigger explanation for that. And then you start to unpick the thing. Uh, and what led me onto this was something. It was after um, it was after uh, David had died, and, and Navarra Media in Britain had did a, did a, a it was a very nice sort of tribute uh, show about him and an interview with John John McDonnell, um, where he mentioned that, that David's sort of unswinging support for the Corbyn project took him back to what was the original split, or perhaps the, the biggest original split uh, in the, the Labour and Socialist movement, which was between socialists and anarchists. So in other words, it's 150 years. This is back to the first international. And Marx's rather sort of sectarian rows with various rather sectarian anarchists at the time. And then the formalisation of that split uh, with the foundation of the Second International, which is a very long way back from where we are. That's a very sort of big historical perspective that you end up taking on that. That was one part of it. The other bit was it's just just that that David's work itself had been kind of read by I want I don't know about everyone but great numbers of people around this movement uh, in Britain at least around the sort of Jeremy Corbyn movement around the anti-capitalist uh, or anti-austerity movement uh, that, that predated it uh, you know debt the first five thousand years was was something of a bestseller bullshit job certainly was the essay that he was originally based been circulating God knows how many millions of times around uh, the internet. It was very, very widely read. And he himself was a, a notable and very consistent, he didn't waver in this at all, supporter of the Jeremy Corbyn project, despite his, his sort of anarchist sort of political inclinations, or perhaps you might say because of them, but we can come back to that. And yet that work never really fed into much of what the Jeremy Corbyn movement was talking about. Or, or other populist, maybe actually, you can argue the toss a bit, but there was a similar sort of issues across Europe, I felt, but certainly in Britain, that we had this committed supporter doing all this interesting work, which everybody had read, and it never really filtered into what we were talking about. So that, that was my starting point for writing. Um, why think about, how, what is the historical context we need to think about the, the, the defeat that we've just gone through in the last 10 years? Is it actually much bigger or at least does it need to be historicised on a broader scale than perhaps we're used to, which might well be bigger than just, you know, you've lost an election, there'll be another one soon. Uh, or, and equally, the sort of anti-historicism is saying, that was it forever, you will never return, there'll be no more left, which kind of the right certainly think, and there's a bit of the left that have this uh, somewhat this sort of mentality as well. It's just like, this is doom uh, forevermore. There's a need to sort of historicise on the kind of scale that I thought John was talking about in relation to David Graeber's work and the relationship between the anarchists and the socialists, which does put in a 150-year scale. And then the other part was just this, is there something to be gleaned from the inability of the movement or the unwillingness of the movement or just the failure of the movement to pick up anything of these cues from anarchist thinking and make more use of them? And this tends to circulate, as I say in the essay, around the question of in and against the state that people kind of recognise the state as a problem, that we'd say, oh, we want to be in the state to make it do nice things. Um, but then you say, oh, well, but we're going to be against the state because he's actually oppressive and capitalist and bad. And then never actually bothering really to reconcile these two. It's just something you say, and then you just hope to win the election and everything will be fine anyway. I mean, that, that's kind of how it pans out. That's the strategy. If you look at what the Corbyn movement turns into by the end of 2019, it's reams and reams of instructions, very detailed manifesto for what the state should do. It is not very critical of the state as such. 
and, and that's that's where the that's where the sort of line of thinking comes out from. So so that's a, a rather long winded answer, but I think I hope that gets you to why is it that any of us, you know, if you sit in different parts of the left, might want to pay attention to what David Graeber uh, wrote about. I'm so sorry, everyone. I was muted. Um, so I was just I was just saying to James um, that that absolutely uh, gets us to the question of the state and the let's let's. Uh, grab this anarchism, socialism, uh, dangerous binary and, 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 and grab it directly. Um, in his book, The Utopia of Rules, Graeber breaks from this state versus market binary that still structures so much of our political discourse, because he says that both states and private firms have come to be defined by the same logic of bureaucratic domination. And when, when combined with the shared worship of labor, um, he says that that bureaucracy and labor worship gives to contemporary American life a strangely kind of Soviet character. Um, Susan Buck Morris made this point in the 1990s in Dreamworld and Catastrophe. Um, uh, in recent years, sections of the left have rediscovered the language of freedom as ours. In academia, this is so-called neo-republicanism. But usually in order to contest the right-wing claim that freedom is opposed to the state. So like the social democrats of old, they want to celebrate existing states as enablers of freedom. And that depresses me, and I think it depresses you too. Uh, Graeber sets a much better example. So let's just take this anarchism thing directly. What kind of left-wing anti-statism do we need now? And how can we learn from David Graeber? Uh, I talk about this as well. The, 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 the logic of bureaucracy and bureaucratization is it's not just an anarchist critique. There's any number of strands of a socialist left that talk about bureaucratization. I mean, you can think about sort of various bits of Trotsky himself, uh, various sort of Trotskyist movements and, and, and sects and little groups and thinkers. And th th there's, there's a number of people who sort of end up in this place where you have something that is not just a pure sort of state and just a pure market. And there's a similar logic of how people relate to each other once you form a bureaucracy. Uh, and I think also like, you can follow the thread back um, into Marx uh, around his writings on alienation and how alienation functions and why it is that it is not enough to sort of just change property relations. You know, if you say, okay, capitalism, it means private ownership and labor markets and whatever, therefore we'll just sort of change those a bit. We'll, we'll have nationalization of, of lots of major parts of the economy. Uh, it's not enough to change that because the alienation that is still present in how people work and how people relate to each other is still there. And it takes kind of a specific form. And you can see this in some of Marx's writings, uh, in the form of bureaucracy in the form of this sort of bureaucratic modes of, of relating to each other and bureaucratic structures. And, and, and David being an anarchist um, obviously really runs with this. This, this is a critique that is heavily associated with anarchism. I think to, in a slightly, sometimes a slightly weaker way in the sense that bureaucracy itself becomes a motive force in society, that it's almost like a will to power. Why is bureaucracy there? It's there to grab more power for itself. And this is actually very close to some of the sort of neoliberal uh, criticisms, uh, the public choice theory kind of critique of bureaucracy from the 70s onwards. It is a bit like that, that bureaucrats are there to grab more power to themselves. This is why you need a market to discipline them. This is why you need privatisation. They're there to serve the public good, as in the ideology, the sort of public service ideology of the, the state bureaucracy. They're actually there just to grab power to themselves. But this is a also sort of Nietzschean claim about how power operates. And, and I think, and what I try to do in the essay, and I think this is important to do this, because I think David touches on some of this 
in his own work, particularly notably around uh, bullshit jobs and utopian rules, is that you also need to sort of historicize the way the bureaucracy operates. It's not that there's just an ideology and alienation, therefore bureaucracy appears. There's also a particular dynamic to how capitalism, private capitalism part of it, operates, which is increasingly in the world we're in now adopting a kind of bureaucratic uh, form. And in some ways, often a, a, almost an anti-market form in, in two different directions. One is certainly since 2008, you can see that the state returning everywhere. And, and the pandemic has hugely accelerated this. The state is returning everywhere to try and shape economic outcomes. It pulls out the banks. Industrial strategy becomes a, a live concern. There, there are conflicts between states that were certainly not supposed to happen. If you follow the, the sort of neoliberal rules about how the world economy operates, there are conflicts between states over trade. You know, Trump uh, whacking up tariff barriers against China, uh, really an attempt to try and cripple China's technological development. That, that's the heart of the, the row there. Biden isn't going to touch these things, by the way. That that is something that remains in place. So there's a sort of state logic that starts to get imposed on private capital. The two things start to get drawn closer and closer together. The other side of that is a sort of anti-market logic that appears on things like, if you load Facebook, it still says Facebook is free and it always will be on its opening screen. This is not a standard market operation. There is a market somewhere else. But for you as a consumer, you don't see the market. That's just you setting up all your network of relationships to your friends that Facebook then goes and sells elsewhere. You're at one remove from it. It's, it's not a pure market transaction at that point. So there's a, a different kind of logic that starts to appear there. And these things start to match together. And, and I suggest that really they start to meet together because you know, essentially, capitalism is finding life more difficult. There are rising costs from you know, the rising costs of labor, the rising costs of dealing with the environment. It's both the cost of resources and the cost of environmental destruction, of which, by the way, COVID-19 has to be considered a, a particularly dramatic example. This forces a bureaucratic logic on it. And if we and the left are sitting there saying, to be crude, actually, this bureaucratic logic is if the nice people are in charge, basically us, better than some other logic that's out there that we might want to run society, then there's a problem. So I think what we have to drag out of this, and, and what I think Graeme's work forces us to, to think about, is that the, there are the, the bureaucratic logic is not necessarily one that leads to freedom. It is not necessarily one that can be attached to, to the left. It doesn't have to be attached to the left. And that it is in the less historical development that it ends up with a version of freedom, which is, as you said, Barnaby, is kind of centred on can the state give us freedom rather than how do we create freedom for ourselves? I mean, there have always been different parts of the left that are taking different views than that. The, the, the sort of socialism from below tradition, the tradition of the Institute for Workers' Control in Britain, the idea of guild socialism and various other sort of things that are out there, the minority currents within the labour and socialist movement, sometimes actually influenced by anarchism, are always there, but the majority of it basically takes a state logic. And at this point in time, where capital is taking on more of a state logic, it's not clear to me, and I don't think it should be clear to anyone, that the logic of those opposing capital should in fact work in the same direction as capital itself. So you need an anti-state critique. Definitely. Um, I completely agree. And I think that um, it kind of leads on to one of the questions that I had for you, um, which was kind of thinking through what the left looks like after Corbyn. Um, and I guess one of the junctures that we've ended up at is a kind of uh, crossroad between moving towards um, 
in the direction of what we've seen, what we had seen in the years leading up to Corbynism, which was an increasing decentralization or horizontalism and leftist organizing or trying to re- rebuild or reconsolidate in, within the Labour Party or build an alternative. And um, the latter seems to be moving further and further out of reach. Um, but I wonder if that could be conceptualized as an opportunity. And I'm kind of now trying to work through if we're saying that the left um, has become increasingly invested in the state as an institution, in the belief that if we were just the good the good guys in charge of the state, we could leverage the state or the power of the state to good ends. Um, to what extent was the Corbyn project representative of that in terms of sucking people's energies or sucking the left's energies into not just a status project, but a project which was specifically invested in the Labour Party? It's it's a very good question. It sort of it, it kind of feels like it boils down to: Did we all waste our time for five years? <laughs> <Should we> lose? <laughs> and, and the answer, the answer, I think, is no. I mean, look, the, 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 obviously, I would say something like that, but it, it's like the, the fact is, the left in Britain is now hugely stronger than it has been for like my entire adult life. I mean, that, that's just like straight off. There are institutions that now exist uh, that weren't there before. There is a left media ecosystem. Uh, of various different sorts that, that's out there. There are things like salvage. There are uh, a huge number of people who have learned lessons and gone through the process of trying to organise something and think about the world, and they've built up something. And that's important because those institutions there is stronger even inside the Labour Party. If you compare the, the campaign group in 2015 to the Socialist Campaign Group now, just on the level of, sort of purely like factional identification in the Parliamentary Labour Party, it's bigger than it was. It's more solid than it was. It's much more robust uh, than it was. So, so all of these are concrete achievements which are actually quite hard to unwind and haven't been unwound. The, the, the question really is, what is the strategy after that? And I think there's, there's, there's a need to be... There's a need for us to be more sort of realistically critical about what we got wrong and what we got right with, with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, my own view is that we, we did lean too heavily into a, a bureaucratic logic by the time we got to the end, that we, we had a sort of rough balance otherwise. For various different reasons, we ended up with a sort of rough balance otherwise. That there were strands of Corbynism that I think were very promising in terms of developing a sort of socialism from below, taking this, the work around the alternative models of ownership, the stuff around decentralised but collective ownership that, that you'd want to try and introduce, the stuff that's actually very close to the kind of things David Graeber and other anarchists would talk about when they talk about prefigurative politics. And this has always been often been a bit of a no-no on the left, probably, again, going back to Marx and various others who would insist that you don't want you know, mad blueprints for what the ideal society is like. You don't want to claim, like I think it was Fourier, that, 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 it was Fourier, that Caesar be lemonade onto socialism. This sort of, you know, or get everyone living in stairs of, was it 200, or was it 2,000 people each of carefully divided division of labour, just deranged schemes for the reorganisation of society. You can see why there's a reaction against that. But it's also... Uh, not the case. I find that we're not going to drop a mad blueprint, but the, the fact is that we're also going to have to try and put some things on the ground and the strategy to develop what an alternative society looks like has to put some stuff on the ground uh, on the steps we get towards that. That is particularly the case if we think that the state isn't the resolution to all the problems of society. You have to do something else. You have to build something else. And some of that might be variants of using the local state. So we talked a lot about the Preston model. That's one version of that. And some of it might well be things like you know, versions of community ownership and, and workers' control and whatever forms we can develop around that. Historically, in Britain, by the way, this would include you know, solid 
trade union organization in workplaces that was quite independent minded, that would be shop stewards elected by a workforce that had some representative power and authority uh, and some clout and some independence. And that would be what it looked like. That was something that was outside of the state. And during the high point of this, by the way, the state makes increasing efforts to incorporate shop stewards. That's what a lot of the conflicts in the 60s and 70s are about. And then it gives up on it entirely and just says we're going to smash a lot of them. And that's what the 80s is about. And here we all are. But there are lots of different versions of what a prefigurative politics might look like that we can assemble. And that has to be a strategy. Um, there is a sort of, there was a swing against this, like you say, in around 2015. And I, I like it as a book. Um, it's Nick Cernicek and Alex uh, Williams' uh, Inventing the Future. I think they coin it where they call it folk politics, that we just kind of talk about the small scale and like the little things and not address the, the big central questions of power in society. And, and that's a reaction against that sort of parody 90s early 2000s sort of anti-capitalist autonomist, you know, let's go and uh, run a coffee shop instead of overthrowing capitalism, a parody somewhat. Uh, it's a reaction against that, but it's, it's overcompensating at the same time. There is, there is a point, I wouldn't call it a third way, but there's a point in between where a strategy builds from those bases we have outside in the rest of society without necessarily thinking about take the Labour Party, take state power as the immediate direct route to doing this. There are a whole series of steps we'd have to put in place otherwise. And I would just say, by the way, we'd have to do that even if you run the Labour Party. Like if Were Jeremy Corbyn to have been elected at any point, let's say in 2017, it's a much plausible moment of that happening, as well as having this government, quite likely a minority government, in power with its list of things it wants to do, you'd need a big movement across the rest of society to support that and to make things happen. I mean, that just strikes me as stating the obvious that you want this to happen. You'd want lots of things happening on the ground. You want local authorities to start taking the initiative in changing how they work ahead of central government doing that. You'd want more versions of community ownership. You'd want more workers taking control of their workplaces. All of these things would have to happen as well. So, so probably any version of what a left strategy looks like will have to do variants of this. But my, my inclination at the minute is to say a lot more of it has to be bent outside of thinking, get the state, make the state do nice things, and into versions of making stuff happen outside the central national state. I completely agree. And I guess following on from that uh, would be a question, I guess, um, well, addressing the invitation you take on from David um, to stretch our historical, and I would also add geographical horizons, um, I've been thinking quite a bit about the kind of new orthodoxies of the left and how many of them um, have, as you've kind of pointed to, um, in a sense, been received from some of the ideological apparatus of neoliberalism, but also like some orthodoxies of socialism, which existed prior. Um and I'm kind of thinking about this question in two ways. One, thinking about how we draw up the short history of Corbynism um, and what produced it. I think there maybe is a narrative which might be unsettled of a kind of Corbynism as the coalescence of a series of um, left forces which are achieving some degree of insurgence um, in the period leading up to Corbyn. Um, and I guess the inability of Corbynism to translate into on a mass scale, um, the kind of grassroots mobilization or organizing that was required, um, not just to kind of seize state power, but also to build um, institutions of the left, which were built from below as opposed to from above. And then the kind of longer history that I'm thinking about is are the um, 
the upsetting of the longer trajectory that I'm thinking about is the sense in which, and I think you nod to this when you talk about how we're in danger of kind of overstating the novelty of neoliberalism, um, but the extent to which the left hasn't fully contended with the um, defeat of the 1980s um, and what that meant for how society is structured and arising out of both of those contentions um, is a very broad question <laughs> about the revolutionary subject or who is the subject of change, who is the agent of history um, in a society in which it seems that, as I kind of nodded to in the introduction, capitalist realism or the ideological edifice of capitalism is deeply, so deeply ingrained um, such to produce a despondency rather than to kind of produce a rejection of change. It's a, 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 a feeling of the impossibility of change, um, but also in which the kind of class formation, processes of class formation have been so radically transformed. Um, so if the first question was to ask where next for the left, the next question is to ask who is the left? <laughs> okay, well, that's it. That's it. Two, two small um, questions to get into there. Uh, on the first one, I mean, the, the sort of short history of Corbynism. I mean, there's quite there's quite a neat thing that happens in the last decade. That basically it starts very conveniently in uh, 2010 with the student protests, and arguably the turn to austerity in, in June 2010, and then ends equally neatly in December 2019. So, so you get a sort of the 2010s as this decade that is a very very clear kind of arc of austerity is launched, it produces this response which becomes Corbynism. I, I don't think you can separate Corbynism from the sort of anti-austerity movement. It's various different forms. that are more things that come into it, but without that push, it doesn't happen. And then by the end of the decade, you have an election of a, an anti-austerity government, uh, which unfortunately is the Conservatives. Um, but th there is a sort of neat... Um, I'm being slightly ironic, obviously, although yeah, the Prime Minister does keep insisting that he is anti-austerity. And, and one of the complications now, and one of the appearances of this sort of authoritarian capitalism, as Laurie McFarlane's coining, uh, Grace Blakely has called it, you know, sort of state capitalism or state monopoly capitalism, um, this kind of state capital fusion, is that austerity in the classic form of like what we had in the early 2010s probably isn't going to reappear and, and coronavirus and all the debts aren't going to make it uh, reappear quite in quite the way that we anticipate. Um, so, so that's, that's the sort of, that's the arc of what happens in the last decade. Uh, and the election of Jeremy Corbyn sits very neatly in the middle of it as this confluence of anti-austerity politics with some of the historical elements of the left as well. And you can throw in also the anti-war movement, although, and that, that specific part, I think, of what Jeremy Corbyn stood for was relatively underplayed. And that coalition of forces and that kind of, sort of mental world it inhabited, if you like, I, I think one of the problems we had is that it's partly just because it spent so long, the left in Britain spent so long very distant from anything like political power that, you know, once you're suddenly put very close to it, really, really close to it, working out what to do is quite hard. And some of what you had was just the stuff you had lying around from the last time you were that close, possibly even more distant, arguably, uh, in the early 80s, let's say. So you just grab this stuff and try and make it work. And then some of it was also, and this is this is a borrowing a term from Mark Fisher, who actually borrowed it from, from Derrida. Uh, some of it is this sort of hauntology of the left, where it's like much of what it looks like, maybe people don't quite express it like this, but much of how this appears that this coalition around Jeremy Corbyn hangs together different strands of which anti-austerity is the most important one. By the way, anti-austerity is, is a reversal. 
It's like you're opposing this thing and you want it to go back to how it was. It's, it's kind of automatically backwards looking. All these different strands come together. And whether people express it like this or not, there's a, there's, a, there's a great deal of thought given to how you can reverse the historic mistake of neoliberalism, basically. That why do you want to spend so long in these particular parts of the program? Like, why do you want renationalization of the utilities as a major plank of what you're doing? I mean, it's a good thing to do, but why is it such heavy focus? Because you're kind of correcting a mistake. You're, you're you know, doing this for the people who lost in the 1980s. This time we're going to get it right, right? So it's a hauntological uh, idea of how we're going to make this work because you're looking at a future that never happened and then suddenly you have an opportunity to try and bring it about. And, and I think a lot of the political imagination of the left was too dominated by kind of thoughts that operated like this, that this was the chance to neoliberalism. But sort of the moment when neoliberalism itself is starting to look a bit shaky, rather than this is a chance to lay a path to the future. Uh, and that was, uh, and that kind of comes through in lots and lots of different ways around what is the program, what is the focus of Corbynism. I don't, I don't want to give too much to this sort of right-wing criticism that you know, you're all stuck in the 70s. I mean, a lot of you know, what we proposed was a good set of solutions to the problems we face in Britain. The rapid decarbonisation programme is a good idea. But almost too much of the strategy and too much of the mental, you know, the imagination around this was a sort of backward-looking rather than forward-looking. And it was quite hard to do the more forward-looking or the more, um, what would you call it, the, the, the more recent sets of ideas. Things like UBI, you know, it, it's, it can be important or not important, but it always arrived at a discount because it was not something that was part of the historic kind of memory of what the left should be doing. It was something a bit newer, for example. So, so that was a challenge to get over. And I, and I think we sort of, all of us in a model that looks like this. And that's, and this is just quickly on your, on your second question, which probably deserves more than a quick answer. But, but that's, that's, that I think is a challenge not only for, not only for saying like, how do we get out of neoliberalism, which as I say, I think is now grinding to a halt rather slowly and painfully and not necessarily getting us to anything better, potentially getting to something worse. But nonetheless, that's where it's going, is that the, the entire period where the left itself in this social democratic form in which it was possible to ask the state and get the state to do nice things and distribute the goods and have a welfare state and free education and rising living standards, that period of time could well have ground to a halt and ended. Uh, and, and at least a major part of that is probably the environmental pressures that are now that we've been placing on the world for a long period of time and now becoming very apparent and unavoidable. So, so put all this together, you're, you're at the end of a historic period of time. And if you're at the end of the historic period of time, the use of grabbing things from that history and saying, how do we use it now, is reduced. Now, that doesn't mean that capitalism has gone away. In many senses, this is more capitalism than, than we've ever seen. It penetrates deeper into everybody's lives that, than it ever has done. It, it's kind of the, the combination of state and capitalism means you get more capitalism in lots of your life. That's what it looks like. You know, if you have, for instance, talk about a vaccine passport that is digital, that the data for it will be administered by a private company, suddenly this is a very, very personal part of your life that is potentially dragged out and made more capitalist and turned into something that, that gets used quite differently. So having more state doesn't mean less capitalism. It means more capitalism, potentially. That means that who's the agent? What is the subject that can change this? I think it still gets us back to you know, the fundamental question of you know, who, who is producing value? Who are the people that can organise? Who are the people that can disrupt all of these processes? And if capitalism itself is not as good as producing value as it used to be, actually that, that location of the value-producing people, which you know, classically you go, 
you're a worker, you're in a factory, therefore you organize, this is how you stop capitalism. That would be your very traditional sort of left-wing view of it. The location of where those people might be in society looks a bit different. And they're not necessarily all going to be in the same place, certainly not all going to be in the same factory necessarily. But you can start to organize a subject that looks like this. And that is is where I think the, the, the sort of the potential for change in society starts to locate itself. Thanks so much, James. And I actually think that's a really good kind of point um, to bring our second guest on. Um, so we're now delighted to welcome Hannah Apple, an anthropologist whose book, The Licit Life of Capitalism, U.S. Oil in Equatorial Guinea, is really stunning. Um, but she joins us as a member of the Debt Collective and co-author of its manifesto, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, published by Haymarket Books. Hannah. Um, could you tell us how you came to know David Graeber and what lessons you take from him? Let's see. I had just moved to New York. It was the fall of 2011. And the fall of 2011, for those of you who have your kind of left contemporary timelines going, is, of course, the beginning of Occupy Wall Street. It had not yet begun. And I was invited by a series of or by a group of anthropology comrades and colleagues. So and who will probably be familiar to Haymarket audiences, right? Yara Marbania, who writes fabulous stuff about U.S. imperialism and debt in Puerto Rico, has a first book on organizing in Martinique. So Yaramar was there. Michael Ralph, my dear friend Michael Ralph, was there. And um, Biela Coleman was there, right? One of the, the anthropologists who writes about uh, Anonymous. And David, who already lived in London at the time, came to the bar to meet us. And of course, as an anthropology student, I had, I had just finished my PhD at the time. I had read David. I knew about David um, as a well-known anthropologist. I had actually done my undergraduate degree at Yale, <clears throat> where he has a very kind of controversial history that I had kind of vaguely known about as an undergrad. But this was the first time I met him in person. And we were in a dark bar. It's hilarious to say this again, but I'm sort of a lightweight. And so we were already one drink in. And suddenly David starts launching into this story of how for the last couple of days, he's gone down somewhere on Wall Street and like met up with a bunch of people and they were sitting on the ground, much like that picture demonstrates, right? There weren't that many people there. They're calling it Occupy Wall Street. He's really not sure what it was going to be like. And all of us there sitting with him, I think I can't speak for everybody else's internal experiences, but certainly my curiosity was piqued. But David also narrated it in this really fabulous David way. And for those of you who have ever had the privilege of interacting with him, he was an incredibly energetic and like um, productive speaker. And so it just had some of that uh, energy of David where you're like, David, what are you really talking about? Like what's really going on down there? So I went back to my postdoc, like the good, diligent, thinking I was radical anthropologist. And then a couple of days later, you know, three or four days later, the Brooklyn, the police kettled Occupy Wall Street protesters on the Brooklyn Bridge. And they kettled them in a fairly spectacular way, which is to say that it became a media spectacle almost immediately. And that's really what splashed Occupy Wall Street onto the New York press first, and then later, of course, across the country and around the world. And so after that happened, and this is an admission of my own ridiculousness, after that happened, then I showed up. <laughs> um, and so David, you know, he was in London already, but was coming back and forth. And so then we became, um, we became friends and worked together during that year. And then we also kind of developed a scholarly relationship together. So I did some stuff with him in the Radical History Review, and we did kind of legibly scholarly things together. But most profoundly, and John, stop me if this part was already uh, broadcast, but most profoundly, it's really um, David's influence on me and on 
us, and now I speak of the debt collective, as activists, that um, David continues to be such a huge part of my life and our lives at the debt collective, where we organize debtors unions. And I was just saying, and maybe this part did, did broadcast, but I'll say it again, you know, Annie's last question to James, that I think James answered in, in such an interesting and provocative way with this question of, you know, what is the location? Sorry, I'm looking at my notes. So I'm looking down the location, you know, where the revolutionary subject might be now, right? And James, of course, says, okay, so traditionally on the left, the revolutionary subject is about people who share factory floors and can withhold their labor, right? Can threaten a strike. But then, of course, right now, given the way that capitalism has shape, shape shifted, and I think in Annie's really excellent introduction to Annie is putting this to us, right? Like there are new conditions. What do we do in the new conditions? So as capitalism shapeshifts, and as we are in finance capitalism, and fewer and fewer of us share factory floors, what do more and more of us share? And where can we find our collective leverage? We share debts, which is to say we share creditors. Because it is neoliberalism in the way that all of you have been describing on this panel so far, and the state is a capitalist state, many of those debts, like student debt in the United States, for instance, we seem to have lost Hannah in mid-flow. You can see how quite how thoroughly mid-flow she looks there. Um, uh, so I, I guess this is my chance while we wait for her to come back to um, ask a question, a question that I had in mind to ask James. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Hannah's back with us, we will um, uh, we'll welcome her back. Um, you, it's quite right. I mean, you, you, your essay ends with... Uh, this claim about taking the state being the final moment of a kind of transitional strategy, not the first moment. Um, It's always striking to me that, um, and I don't know why this is the case in Marxism, when we think about the transition to capitalism, of which there's such a varied literature, we have a sense of political revolution, if it features at all, as being a kind of end point after lots of social processes. When we think about the transition to socialism, political revolution becomes the starting point. That is, seizing state power becomes a starting point. so I was, I was very interested in the stuff you were saying about that. Um, um, I wanted to ask about the other big thing in your essay, which is um, the, the discussion about work and the left. Um, you point to the opening of Marx's critique of the Gotha program, a uh, striking moment where he denies that labor is the source of all wealth. Um, and, um, um, oh, I, 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 it seems we have Hannah back, so I'm going to ask you this question quickly. Um, um, uh, which is Marx specifying that labor is the yardstick of value under capitalism, but not the source of all wealth transhistorically. Um, and, you know, Moshe Pistone and others have, have argued that capital's change in its organic composition, automation, uh, makes value based in labor increasingly anachronistic, that's Pistone's term, as such a yardstick. So my question's about the imbrication of the Fordist mass worker with a particular kind of governmentality to generate in the 20th century a, a vision of socialism as planning. I mean, that... that mm-hmm. The, the state planning the economy becomes the language of socialist transformation. And as you note in the penultimate section of your essay, that lingers on today. Um, and your suggestion, I think, is that we need to think differently. So how? So beyond the universalizing of proletarian labor, how else to conceive of the transition out of capitalism is my quick salvo to you. Sorry to throw that at you briefly. <laughs> briefly. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> problem of the state, now give us the problem of work. Okay. These are the two big themes I from your essay. Okay. Um, Look, the, 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 I mean, the, the classic reason in Marxism for thinking that uh, capitalism, the bourgeoisie, takes power through a social process and then a political uh, eruption, that capitalism develops and then only at the last moment does it sort of take political power, uh, that, that's predicating the belief that 
if you're a capitalist in the 1600s or 1500s, you'd already have wealth. I mean, that would be, you'd already be operating in a town and and, and providing um, those sorts of things. You, you'd be providing finance for trade, let's say, or you'd be running ships yourselves, or you'd be a, a merchant of some sort. You know, you'd be in one of these jobs and already have some wealth and stake and therefore some power. And therefore, like as this develops, the demands politically you start to make on the existing state become more and more unsupportable by the state and then the thing changes at some point. This is a sort of classic kind of Marxist scheme for how this operates. And the classic argument also is that the proletarians, the working class, are quite different because they have no stick, they have nothing. So they have to take the thing first and then change what society looks like. Now, this feels to me like you're overstating the degree to which if you're a worker anywhere in the world, almost in, in most different occupations and and locations, you would have absolutely nothing that you bring, right? You, you'd have a great deal of things you bring. This is this is a sort of David Graeber and anarchism in general point, is actually people have dense networks of social relations. They have institutions they set up, self-help institutions, unions, uh, worker-run firms, community organizations, all sorts of different things that are built up that they actually do have. And so it's not just barren nothingness that you have to get the state and then rebuild society. You're already at the point of like, things can be assembled uh, and put in place. Uh, and that is where, and actually this is where most of uh, socialist arguments end up going round and round this set of ideas. It is partly what Gramsci, for example, start, classically starts talking about, that there are other things in society that exist and that these are helping move us towards a different kind of society potentially, that, that there isn't nothing. The working class doesn't turn up with absolutely literally nothing. It has its own organisations, its own sort of historical institutions and, and the rest of it. And, and most of our arguments in reality end up being like, how do you relate to these various sets of historical institutions? Like, how do you relate to the Labour Party or some other social democratic party? How do you relate to trade unions? This is where the arguments fall. So, so that's, that I think is, is why it's, 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 uh, I write it as a process of winning things first and then the state at the end, not get the state and then change everything. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not the sort of, cliche version of a revolution that, that is, is what you're, you're looking for here that I don't think uh, uh, applies. So that's that's the first part of it. The other bit is, I, I think what you're touching on here is, is something that, that I think it sounds like a Tony Negri's argument in Crisis of the Planner State, that the Fordist worker produces a demand for, for planning. Capitalism starts to plan, workers also have the capacity to plan, and that as capital shapeshifts was, was Hannah's uh, quite good little phrase for it, that as it moves somewhere else and as it operates somewhere else, uh, the way, the demands that workers can place in capital start to shift as well. This is, I think, where, and, and the shape of the society might build start to shift as well. This is certainly Negri's argument, the whole sort of autonomist and post-autonomist set, sets of, of arguments fall, fall from this. Um, the relationship back to nature, and this is why that line in the Critique of Gothic program is so important, is, is that Marx draws a hard line um, saying that unlike previous sort of economists who wrote about labor theory of value, he doesn't see uh, the value of anything that is produced in society as just being basically out of all the labor that ever went into it. I mean, this is Adam Smith's and David Ricardo's version of labor theory of value. You, you have something that's made by people, you add up the amount of hours that went in, and not just the people who produced that thing, but the amount of hours that went into the tools that they used. And then the amount of hours that went in to the raw materials that were dug up and turned into this computer or a pen or whatever it is, doing the classic thing of describing what's sitting in front of me as an example. Um, 
Instead of that, Marx has this kind of hard barrier, one hard barrier, two hard sets of hard barriers, actually. One is to say that nature itself is a source of wealth. And, and not just like not just that it is a source of wealth in addition to labor, labor itself comes from nature and that is why it has value. That's one part of it. The other barrier introduces is that capital, because it is a relationship of power between capital and labor, it imposes a break. It's not simply that capital is add up loads of labor. It is add up loads of labor and the nature, and then there is a, an imposition on top of it that makes it capital. So it's, it's got two forms of break, and they're both critically important. And the development of capitalism, I think, starts to look like, and you can see, I think, Andreas Malm in Fossil Capital sort of gestures towards this, as do some of the other ecological Marxists. The development of capitalism looks like the operation of those two tensions. The tension that you have with nature and getting value from nature, and the tension you have in imposing capital as a sort of combination of labour and nature in a hierarchical form. And the development of capitalism over time looks like that. And what we see, I think, now in the last sort of probably running over this decade is that the capacity of nature to actually provide that value is running short, and therefore capitalism is becoming uh, sort of slower and slower as a result. This isn't a falling rate of profit argument. This you need an external source of value to drag into capitalism to make all of this operation work. It is harder to do that. Capitalism is becoming more and more hidebound as a result. It will face increasing costs of things like pandemics. And this is just going to get worse and worse from here on in. And that's why you drag the state in to try and sort of manage the process. Thanks so much, James. Oh, sorry, Annie. <laughs> I was just no going to <laughs> Thanks so much, James. And welcome back to Hannah. I think um, James's last comments were kind of um, in keeping with the line you were treading um, before we lost you there for a moment. So I just wondered if you wanted to continue on that line. Add to what James was just saying. And it's, I want to start with something that David wrote in Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. And he wrote, and I'm quoting him here, even more than high theory, what anarchism needs is what might be called low theory, a way of grappling with those real immediate questions that emerge from a transformative project, right? And I, I am an academic. I love high theory. I love how kind of intensely highly theoretical this conversation is. But speaking as an activist, speaking as an organizer who is in the thick of organizing debtors unions to this question of who is the revolutionary subject, <clears throat> who is the worker, right? As James is narrating for us now. And what does that mean as capitalism shapeshifts? I just want to bring us back a couple summers. I'm based in the U.S., to the, a strike at the General Motors plant in the factory floor in the U.S. South, right? It was one of the most kind of exhilarating stri worker strikes of recent years. But how has capitalism shapeshifted over time? GM, like many other classic industrial capitalist corporations, now makes just as much, if not more, of their profit in effect as a bank, right? Which is to say, as a financier. They make more of their profit um, financing people's car purchases than they do simply selling the cars and having financier banks out here. So what does that mean? That means that when the GM workers went on strike, what would have deeply strengthened their power over their workplace if there was a debtor's union alongside them that agreed to withhold their payments in solidarity until the workers' demands were met? right? As capitalism shapeshifts into finance capitalism, we need to understand where our collective power lies. And this is not to say it no longer lies with workers. On the contrary, the question is how to understand the leverage that workers have and the leverage that debtors have, to which we might add, thanks to James's great provocations and those of others, the leverage that data producers might have, right? Which is to say all of 
all of you, I don't use them, but all people who use Facebook, who use Twitter, right? There are new sites of leverage over the system to make the kinds of demands and realize, to have the power to realize the kinds of new worlds we want. And to me and to us at the Debt Collective, um, debtors unions and the power of debtors to leverage the threat of default, right? Strategic default collectively is really one of those paths to power right now. And I don't mean paths to power in the state, but I'll just leave that there. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about that. And um, there's just so much that I could ask about what you've just said, but I just want to sort of have the firing shot about this uh, question about debt as a, as a, as a political uh, dividing line in a kind of political community. Um, and I, cause th- this is to ask the question that you must get all the time, which is given that everyone with a pension fund is a creditor, everyone with a pension is a creditor. And given that the worst states and corporations are debtors, um, how can indebtedness function as a coherent dividing line for politics, a basis for drawing up a political community of shared interests and for defining shared enemies? You know, James was highlighting how, um, in, in Marx, there's such, an, such a stark division between people who own the means of production and people who have nothing to sell but their labor. And we might think that that division doesn't really work very well in contemporary capitalism. Um, we might think about managerialism and so on. But um, uh, is debt any clearer as a dividing line? Aren't we all creditors and all debtors? So did you hear me when I said low theory, not high theory, which is to say, by which I mean, right, like, and, and this is really where you see David's kind of ethnographic impulse come in as well, right, which is to say, we cannot say something as simple as debt is a dividing line. And there are some people who are debtors and some people are creditors. What we actually have to do, and I'm speaking as organizers here, right? I am speaking as people who want to build power and people who are trying to understand where the locus of revolutionary power is. We have to analyze the contextual, geographic empirics of every situation, right? So I completely agree with you. What does it mean to think about tenants unions alongside mortgage holders unions? What does it mean to think about workers' rights alongside the problem of pensions, right? You actually, in, gosh, I'm going to find David's language again, because I think it's so great. In grappling with those real immediate questions that emerge from a transformative project, this, these are precisely the kinds of analysis and strategizing that we have to do, right? So it's easy enough to say, okay, look, folks who hold debt in the criminal punishment system, and indeed in the US, and it's certainly not as true in the UK, but you go into on average about $17,000 in debt for your own incarceration, and that doesn't include bail. That's just fines and fees when you're jailed, right? Student debt, medical debt, um, housing debt, right? These are all tremendous forms of leverage. And frankly, I would not call it political leverage. It is political leverage, but I would call it economic leverage, right? So John Paul famously said, if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, um, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank, right? It is to say, if there were a mortgage holders union going into 2008, right? And this, you all see that I'm messing with it kind of clean class distinctions here. If there were a mortgage holders union going into 2008 who started talking to their union stewards about, whoa, my adjustable rate mortgage just ballooned. I'm not going to be able to make my payment. Union stewards all around the country are saying, folks are saying they're not going to be able to make their payments. Let's threaten a mortgage strike so that who were disproportionately black and brown homeowners in the US get bailed out. 
But what happened instead, right? The bankers have a union de facto and they got bailed out, right? So, and I, I choose mortgage holders intentionally there because they are not often our kind of imagined class position within capitalism. So I do, I guess my answer to your question, Barnaby, and the reason that I think it has, it has to do with low theory is to say, we cannot impose, in my opinion, a universalizing strategic um, uh, analytic frame or political frame. It used to be work, now it's debt. And debt is the thing. No, you actually have to work strategically and tactically to organize in particular empirical and contextual situations to see where that power is, what it has leverage over, and then what it can demand on the other side, like the social provision of education, medical care, housing. This gets us back to the conversation about the state, which I'm happy to, to continue with. But I guess I'll also just end by flagging what somebody asked in the chat which is, oh, and I have to scroll up. Oh gosh, there are so many, but here it is. Um, the proposal to set up cooperative regional banks, right? What are the kinds of demands that collective economic leverage, like a debtor's union, a massive debtor's union can wield, right? It can start, it's not just debt cancellation. It's not just renegotiation of interest rates or an end to racist lending practices, though it's certainly all of those. It is also, what are the alternative financial institutions and relationships that we need. And I do think that some kind of form of socialized banking is what, you know, we can say public banking, we can say socialized banking, it's all of our conversation with the state is, is one of those for sure. This is such a post-Corbyn, post-Bernie Sanders moment in that we have here trying to sort of grapple with uh, someone who's been spending five years involved in a project from above and has all his um, doubts and questions and someone coming from the um, Occupy scene. Um, and it's, it just makes me think that not often enough are those two um, experiences in, in conversation with each other. I mean, you know, when you talk about the need for uh, some form of socialized finance, well, that then raises the question about whether that is a strategy that has some place for some state act activity. I mean, I, I wrote an essay about um, John McCall's strategy that read him as attempting to recreate a working class which could then agitate for itself um, by, by recreating a certain kind of paid, stable paid employment. There's a question about the feasibility of that and all sorts of questions about that. But, but, but this kind of productive dynamic in which socialism from above and from below require each other and have a relationship to each other rather than just being opposed, which is the traditional 20th century language, um, I think is something that both Hannah and James are um, are trying to get at. There's just one more question I wanted to ask Hannah because it just follows exactly from what you were just saying, um, which is something I find striking in reading Graeber and also in reading your book, uh, Can't Pay, Won't Pay. Because um, I have this, there's this persistent sense. So if one of the obvious questions that you must always get is, you know, how can debt work as a universal heuristic? And you just slapped me down very rightly and said, well, it's not trying to be that. Um, another one is, um, is the is anxiety, traditional left anxieties about counterposing finance to the real economy. Um, Graeber talks about the traditional Marxist uh, in, in the value book. He talks about traditional Marxist criticism of Marcel Mauss, which says, you know, he focuses on the moment of gift exchange. We get nothing about production. Um, I think about Keynes on the euthanasia of the rentier, very much admiring Silvio Gazelle, the economist who wanted negative interest rate, uh, so negative money. Um, and all of this is to leave the value form, is to leave the marketplace and work intact and just try to sort of dampen the power of finance. And the really interesting thing for me is reading your stuff and reading Graeber's stuff, how attentive you are to that kind of issue. So in his 2013 book, The Democracy Project, um, Graeber 
reads credit as part of the real economy because it is chained to the endless expansion of work. Um, the endless increase of credit is increasing uh, work. And so he wants to undermine both. And in can't pay, won't pay, you connect debt refusal to a demand for decommodification. So it isn't just let's let's all have a sort of real money economy without uh, rentier interests and let's have productive capitalists, not parasitic capitalists. It's not that at all. It's um, you're, you're, you shouldn't have college debt in America. And it's amazing for us to, to realize in Britain how, how many bankruptcies you detail in the book are because of medical debt, which obviously isn't a problem we have. So it's to say you shouldn't have this debt. And to call this debt odious and unjust is to say we want the thing that you have taken on the debt um, in order to provide yourself with not to be something that's commodified and that is subject to debt. So I just wanted to ask you to tell us a bit more about how debt abolition and various kinds of different strategies to debt, because you have this debt jubilee project where uh, people, activists paid other people's debt, which obviously isn't debt abolition, it's paying the creditors, but it is easing some people's well, and It might be a kind of realistic strategy for politicizing people's awareness of debt. Even if socialists would say, well, it's not really a debt. So how are the different strategies around debt linked up with a broader program? Um, so how do they sit within a broader program of a kind of project of transformation? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say to your first question about there has been this problem, you know, whether it's kind of on the political left or whether it's in critical theory more broadly of opposing finance capitalism. And James talks about it, I think, really wonderfully in the article, right? This um, sometimes intentional and conscious, sometimes subliminal or unconscious, um, uh, like adoration of productivism, right? So opposing finance capitalism to the real economy, which again, either implicitly or explicitly has a kind of um, veneration for productivism. And so I guess one of the things that we are constantly saying at the Debt Collective, and I hope I made it clear in giving that GM example, right, is that both debt and wage theft, wages, wage theft, are the economic relationships, the financial relationships that make our daily lives. This is true in the United States. This is true in uh, Britain. This is true across Europe. This is true across the entire world in very different ways, contextually, right? But it is to say that separation of them and the kind of either implicit or explicit um, idealization of the productive sector I think is a profound misunderstanding of capitalism, certainly now, if not also very a very long time back in the past. So one of the things that another um, comrade, a, a debt collective comrade, often says, Andrew Ross, right, is that um, our debt is wage theft. It's future wage theft. Or in response to the incredibly important campaigns right now for minimum wage, at least in this country, if minimum wage goes up to $15, can workers afford to send their kids to so-called public college? I teach at one of those formerly public colleges. No, $15 an hour isn't going to allow those people to afford to send their kids to public college. So it is to say worker organizing power and debtor organizing power have leverage over different parts of the system, right? Worker organizing power has leverage over the bosses, over the condition of work. Debtor organizing power has leverage over how we finance things in the first place. And we need leverage over both of those things. Those things cannot be separated and they are not separated in our daily lives. Barnaby, as you point out rightly um, in thinking about those lucky enough to have pension funds and in the United States, that's not very many people, but ideally maybe it's more um, in the UK. And then there was a second part of your question that I also wanted to address. Ah, but it's escaped me. I'm so sorry. Maybe you want to remind me of the very last thing, but I can, I can get to it later. Damn, let me try to remember what I just said to you. Um, oh, 
about it's about how um, how the politics of debt refusal, debt abolition, paying other people's debts. Ah, that's um, what it was. Within a broad yeah. Yeah. So I talked about your link. You're looking at the decommodification. Yes. No, that's really helpful. So it was so one of the projects that Barnaby was referring to is something that um, Strike Debt did called the Rolling Jubilee. So if you go to rollingjubilee.org, you'll see it. And I just wanted to actually read a little quote that I have from Graeber's book, Direct Action, probably one of my favorite books of his, right? And I think in the in the introduction to this, one of you, Annie um, or Barnaby, quoted it, right? So in Graeber's words, direct action is the insistence when faced with structures of unjust authority, the insistence on acting as if one is already free, and it was in the name of this event too, to go on strike, to destroy machinery, to occupy factories, right? All of this is a matter of workers seizing for themselves the right to employ coercive force, right? Workers um, or capitalists own the tools they do not use, right? The IWW and workers use the tools they do not own. So what does it mean, David, and so many other people ask, to act as if the tools were already your own? So here, I mean, what we do at the Debt Collective is to say, what does that, we know what that means in industrial capitalism. What does it mean in finance capitalism? So in the Rolling Jubilee project, right, the, debt, the strike debt jumps through the hoops to become a certified debt collector, right, and then buy debt on secondary and tertiary markets and abolish it. You are absolutely right that that, especially the earlier iteration of that project was not yet linked to debtors unions. So it wasn't able to build the kind of collective power that we wanted, but it did kind of disturb some of the morality and some of the basic ideological ways that people think debt works. But it is these kind of beginning of experiments in what does direct action on finance capitalism look like. And for that reason, I think it's actually a really exciting beginning. And I think a debtors union speaks to that too right? The tools of capitalism change over time. How do we make the newer tools our own? I would say that that is probably the fundamental power building experiment that the Debt Collective is involved in right now. Thanks so much, Hannah. I'm going to jump in and maybe turn the direction a little bit. Um, I'm just thinking about the essay that you wrote last year um, on reparative public goods and the future of finance, of fantasy in three parts. Um, and I note that you kind of begin with a question of racial capitalism. And I guess one interesting thing about this conversation is that when we're talking about the state and when we're talking about finance, we're always at once talking about the national and the international or the transnational. Um, and so I guess my question would be just kind of thinking through where um, I encountered the analysis of finance, uh, finance capital um, through analyses of imperialism and thinking about the role in the 20th century that debt through major organizations like the IMF and the World Bank play in structuring the dynamics of um, uh, international power or global power. And I note that you kind of um, point towards the notion of the nation as fallacy. Um, it's quite a, I think Barnaby might agree, Leninist argument, <laughs> but you point towards the kind of notion of the nation as fallacy. And I guess um, what I'm thinking about is how do we marry an approach which isn't seeking to universalize debt um, as the dividing line in our struggles, but also recognizes that debt functions at all of these different levels. How do we talk about debt or how do we talk about the particular without lapsing into that same fallacy of the nation? And when yeah. that which is local seems like it's global. Yes, Lenin, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. That's so funny. I didn't think of that as a particularly Leninist argument, but I hear you. 
Um, so I guess what I'll say, I'll start the answer to your question, which I love. I want to start it with debt and then I'll move it to this question of imperialism and the transnational. And it, it brings in Barnaby's question again of, you know, can debt be this kind of overarching unifier or sort of like political, um, singular, somehow singular or universal political project. This is what I'll say about debt. Our approach, at least at the debt collective, is not so much about debt in theory, right? It is about debt as a kind of counterintuitive, right? Paradoxical leverage over the system. So the question is where, in what circumstances, and between whom does debt offer potential leverage? And what kind of organizing would allow us, often across national boundaries, to leverage to 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 um, leverage that in concert, right? And I'll just read actually a little two line thing. I feel like I'm such a professor. I'm like reading all of these quotes from David Graeber. Sorry, everybody. Um, but from this book that folks have mentioned that Haymarket published, "Can't Pay, Won't Pay: The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition," right? We address exactly this question that Annie asked. Mass indebtedness connects those of us living in the United States with millions of others around the world. It connects Ferguson, Missouri. So we talk quite a bit about racial capitalism and police violence in the book. Ferguson, Missouri to Greece, Puerto Rico. We talk a lot about U.S. empire to Bolivia. These are not theoretical links, right? This is the important distinction. These are not theoretical links, but literal connections through shared institutions like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, BlackRock, the World Bank, and the U.S. Federal Reserve, which of course James talks quite a bit about in the article at issue today, the lender of last resort to the world. Indebtedness is a lived experience upon which solidarity can be built, and it is also a hidden geography of potential global people power. Our debt is a weapon we all have access to if we can leverage it in concert. And that if everything hinges on that if, right? From an organizing perspective, what does it mean to leverage it in concert? What kinds of research would we need? What kinds of transnational organizing would we need to understand what JP Morgan's transnational portfolios look like? And then to mobilize at all the, the scales, right? So it's it's household debt, it's municipal debt, it's sovereign debt, and they hold often disaggregated pieces of all of that. What would it mean as debtors to have a rigorous enough, a deeply researched enough analysis of those portfolios, and then as organizers to be able to move that across scales? And of course, and you know, we see that, Annie, in response to your the specific part of your question that's about the IMF and that's about the World Bank, we see that in the Jubilee South movement, right? We see um I mean, it's mostly folks on the ground across the global South, across much of Africa, across much of Latin America, saying no more and actually getting together at supranational levels and getting their arguments all the way to the World Bank, which does end up leading to some debt cancellation. And interestingly now, of course, under COVID, we're seeing again a kind of resurgence of a global South debt crisis, but under very different institutional terms, right? So we are now no longer talking primarily about the International Monetary Fund or primarily about the World Bank, which is to say kind of quasi-public international financial institutions. But we are really now talking about private lenders. We are really now talking about major banks, which tells us that the terrain of struggle is different, right? The way that the Jubilee South movement was able, at least for a brief time, to put the IMF and the World Bank on blast 
and win some debt cancellation is very different from what it would take to put some of these global banks on blast. But the last thing I'll say about that is that as many of you in the audience may be thinking, and as I'm thinking too, debt cancellation is meaningful, right? I'm thinking of Thomas Sankara, who says that debt is a neocolonialism, right? So debt cancellation is meaningful. But unless we are able to dismantle the US dollar as the world's imperial currency, that shit will not matter. And so now I'm just going to channel my best Professor Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right? Abolitionist activist, which is to say, we have to plan, we have to organize for the day after victory, right? A debtor's union isn't just going to say, cancel the medical debt, cancel the student debt. It's also going to keep going until that thing is financed in a way that does not disproportionately harm black and black and brown families in a way that is socially um, provisioned and owned, right? And so too, and this is the kind of mind fuck, but at the, pardon my French, at the transnational level, right? You can't just lobby for debt abolition. You can't just use the collective power of debt for debt abolition. It also has to be used to instantiate those alternative institutions, including alternative currency institutions, it has to move toward that day after victory, right? If Jubilee is the victory, it has to instantiate the world that we need behind it. Thank you so much for that, Hannah, Um, because um, I was also going to kind of point to that reference you make in the essay to Ruth Wilson uh, Gilmore about um, abolition as the act of negation and also the act of creation. Um, and I think that uh, when we kind of think about where next for the left, we've been so um, fixed in the politics of negation, um, fixed in a politics of destruction. Um, and I think, well, I have some final words um, just after I give Barnaby an opportunity to from David, which might point us in an alternative direction. Oh, Annie, you're, uh, Annie knows, because I've been speaking to her that uh, about, about as I've been reading uh, David Graeber's work this week and preparing for this and have been stunned by how many threads I come across that I want to pursue. And there are just, so, I wish we had so many more hours because I feel like we're just getting started. It's a particular personal pain to me that I haven't been able to talk about um, uh, David Graeber as a radical Jewish intellectual and the um, the inspiration that he gave to me as someone who was quite furious in standing up for the universalist Jewish tradition against the uh, conquest of, of, of Judaism, and of course, much more violently of, of others, of Palestinians, uh, by, by a violent form of, of nationalism and of such a colonialism. Um, and his um, intransigence in, in opposing that um, with, with real passion in, in, in the last years of his life and intervening in defense of, 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 of the Corbyn Labour Party um, was just part and parcel of that more general universalism um, and curiosity about the world and insistence on siding with the oppressed that, that has sustained our interest in this conversation and throughout. So I just wanted to uh, read a quotation. Uh, I know we're out of time, which is so sad, and I'll, I'll hand over to Annie to finish. But um, I, before I do, I want to read a quotation in a quite different direction. I hope you won't mind, Hannah, um, because uh, it's this is from a 2007 essay called There Never Was a West. Um, and I spoke in my introduction about how David Graeber busted up ideological assumptions all over the, the spectrum. Um, and uh, it, when we talk about David Graeber and debt, both Annie and Hannah have reminded us that there's a geopolitics to that, there's an imperial politics to that, um, and uh, anthropologists have often been very good at refusing the disciplinary separations, a kind of methodological nationalism that would separate 
economic questions from foreign policy questions um, and see that some experts can talk about one set and other experts can talk about others. David Graeber, the person who talked about debt, is also the person who wrote this, and we should remember that. He wrote in 2007, Islam resembles what was later to be called the Western tradition in so many ways. The intellectual efforts to fuse Judeo-Christian scripture with the categories of Greek philosophy, the literary emphasis on courtly love, the scientific rationalism, the legalism, puritanical monotheism, missionary impulse, the expansionist mercantile capitalism, even the periodic waves of fascination with Eastern mysticism, that only the deepest historical prejudice could have blinded European historians to the conclusion that in fact, this is the Western tradition, that Islamicization was and continues to be a form of Westernization, that those who lived in the barbarian kingdoms of the European Middle Ages only came to resemble what we now call the West when they themselves became more like Islam. Well, there's Graeber upsetting ideological boxes and doing so in the cause of human freedom against capital and empire. It's been a joy to be with you all today. And thank you so much to everyone for staying with us through all of our technical difficulties. This is our first episode. And thank you to Hannah and James for staying with us through so many this is our first episode, and we are, as Greyboard encouraged, um, trying to find jewels in the dirt and trying to construct something uh, 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 amateurishly, and we're very grateful to you for, for being with us. Um, we'll be back with future Salvage Live events, and now I hand over to Annie to, to finish up this one. Thank you so much. Um, so we close with Graeber's words from an essay in The Battler of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit from 2012. And this is the best reason to break free of the dead hand of the hedge fund managers and the CEOs, to free our fantasies from the screens in which such men have imprisoned them, to let our imaginations once again become a material force in human history. Thank you so much, everybody. Do follow Savage and subscribe to the magazine, uh, to the journal, um, so that you can see our future events. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.